Chapter Twenty One of Ayesha: The Return of She. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ayesha: The Return of She by H. Rider Haggard, Chapter Twenty One: The Prophecy of Aten. On the day following the strange experience of the iron that was turned to gold some great service was held in the sanctuary, as we understood, to consecrate the war. We did not attend it, but that night we ate together as usual. Asha was moody at the meal, that is, she varied from sullenness to laughter. Know you, she said, that today I was an oracle, and those fools of the mountain sent their medicine men to ask of the Hesea how the battle would go, and which of them would be slain and which gain honour. And I, I could not tell them, but juggled with my words so that they might take them as they would. How the battle will go I know well, for I shall direct it. But the future, ah, that I cannot read better than thou canst, my holly, and that is ill indeed. For me the past and all the present lie bathed in light reflected from that black wall, the future. Then she fell to brooding, and looking up at length with an air of entreaty, said to Leo, Wilt thou not hear my prayer and bide where thou art for some few days, or even go a-hunting? Do so, and I will stay with thee, and send Holly and Orus to command the tribes in this petty fray. I will not, answered Leo, trembling with indignation, for this plan of hers, that I should be sent out to war while he bided in safety in a temple, moved him, a man brave to rashness, who, although he disapproved of it in theory, loved fighting for its own sake also, to absolute rage. "'I say, Asher, that I will not,' he repeated. "'And moreover, that if thou leavest me here, I will find my way down the mountain alone and join the battle.' "'Then come,' she answered, "'and on thine own head be it. "'Nay, not on thine, beloved. "'On mine. "'On mine.' After this, by some strange reaction, she became like a merry girl, laughing more than I have ever seen her do, and telling as many tales of the far, far past, but none that were sad or tragic. It was very strange to sit and listen to her while she spoke of people, one or two of them known as names in history and many others who have never been heard of, that had trod this earth and with whom she was familiar over two thousand years ago. Yet she told us anecdotes of their loves and hates, their strength or weaknesses, all of them touched with some tinge of humorous satire, or illustrating the comic vanity of human aims and aspirations. At length her talk took a deeper and more personal note. She spoke of her searchings after truth, of how, aching for wisdom, she had explored the religions of her day and refused them one by one of how she had preached in Jerusalem and been stoned by the doctors of the law, of how also she had wandered back to Arabia, and being rejected by her own people as a reformer, had travelled on to Egypt, and at the court of the pharaoh of that time met a famous magician, half charlatan and half seer, who, because she was far-seeing, clairvoyant we should call it, instructed her in his art so well that soon she became his master and forced him to obey her. Then, as though she were unwilling to reveal too much, Suddenly Asha's history passed from Egypt to Kor. 
she spoke to Leo of his arrival there, a wanderer who was named Callicrates, hunted by savages and accompanied by the Egyptian Amenitas, whom she appeared to have known and hated in her own country, and of how she entertained them. Yes, she even told of a supper that the three of them had eaten together on the evening before they started to discover the place of life, and of an evil prophecy that this royal Amenitas had made as to the issue of their journey. I, Asher said, it was such a silent night as this, and such a meal as this we ate, and Leo, not so greatly changed, save that he was beardless then and younger, was at my side. Where thou sittest, Holly, said the royal Amenitas, a very fair woman, yes, even more beautiful than I, before I dipped me in the essence. Foresighted also, though not so learned as I had grown. From the first we hated each other, and more than ever now, when she guessed how I had learned to look upon thee, her lover, Leo, for her husband there never wast, who didst flee too fast for marriage. She knew also that the struggle between us which had begun of old and afar was for centuries and generations, and that until the end should declare itself neither of us could harm the other, who both had sinned to win thee that was appointed by fate to be the lodestone of our souls. Then Amenitas spoke and said, Lo, to my side, Callicrates, the wine in thy cup is turned to blood, and that knife in thy hand, O daughter of Yarab, for so she named me, drips red blood. Ay, and this place is a sepulchre, and thou, O Callicrates, sleepest here, nor can she, thy murderess, kiss back the breath of life into those cold lips of thine. So indeed it came about as was ordained, added Asha reflectively, for I slew thee in yonder place of life. Yes, in my madness I slew thee, because thou wouldst not or couldst not understand the change that had come over me, and shrankest from my loveliness like a blind bat from the splendour of flame, hiding thy face in the tresses of her dusky hair. Why, what is it now, thou Oros? Can I never be rid of thee for an hour? Ohez, a writing from the Kanyatan, the priest said with his deprecating bow. Break the seal and read, she answered carelessly. Perchance she has repented of her folly and makes submission. So he read. To the Hesea of the College of the Mountain, known as Asha upon earth, and in the household of the overworld when she has been permitted to wander, a star that hath fallen. A pretty sounding name, forsooth, broke in Asha. Ah, but Aten, set stars rise again, even from the underworld. Read on, thou Orus. Greetings, O Asha. Thou who art very old hast gathered much wisdom in the passing of the centuries, and with other powers that of making thyself seem fair in the eyes of men blinded by thine arts. Yet one thing thou lackest that I have, vision of those happenings which are not yet, Know, O Asha, that I and my uncle, the great seer, have searched the heavenly books to learn what is written there of the issue of this war. This is written. For me death, whereat I rejoice. For thee a spear cast by thine own hand. For the land of Kaloon, blood and ruin, bred of thee. Aten, Kania of Kaloon. Asha listened in silence. But her lips did not tremble, nor her cheek pale. To Oros she said proudly, Say to the messenger of Aten that I have received her message, and ere long will answer it, face to face with her in her palace of Kaloon, 
Go, priest, and disturb me no more. When Oros had departed, she turned to us and said, That tale of mine of long ago was well fitted to this hour, for as Amenitas prophesied of ill, so does Aten prophesy of ill, and Amenitas and Aten are one. Well, let the spear fall, if fall it must, and I will not flinch from it, who know that I shall surely triumph at the last. Perhaps the Kenya does but think to frighten me with a cunning lie, but if she has read aright, then be sure, beloved, that it is still well with us, since none can escape their destiny, nor can our bond of union which was fashioned with the universe that bears us ever be undone. She paused a while, then went on with a sudden outburst of poetic thought and imagery, I tell thee, Leo, that out of the confusions of our lives and deaths order shall yet be born. Behind the mask of cruelty shine mercy's tender eyes, and the wrongs of this rough and twisted world are but hot blinding sparks which stream from the all-writing sword of pure eternal justice. The heavy lives we see and know are only links in a golden chain that shall draw us safe to the haven of our rest. Steep and painful steps are they whereby we climb to the allotted palace of our joy. Henceforth I fear no more, and fight no more against that which must befall. For I say we are but winged seeds blown down the gales of fate and change to the appointed garden where we shall grow, filling its blessed air with the immortal fragrance of our bloom. Leave me now, Leo, and sleep a while, for we ride at dawn. It was midday on the morrow when we moved down the mountainside with the army of the tribes, fierce and savage-looking men. The scouts were out before us, then came the great body of their cavalry mounted on wiry horses, while to right and left and behind the foot-soldiers marched in regiments, each under the command of its own chief. Asha, veiled now, for she would not show her beauty to these wild folk, rode in the midst of the horsemen on a white mare of matchless speed and shape. With her went Leo and myself, Leo on the can's black horse, and I on another not unlike it, though thicker built. About us were the bodyguard of armed priests and a regiment of chosen soldiers, among them those hunters that Leo had saved from Asha's wrath, and who were now attached to his person. We were merry, all of us, for in the crisp air of late autumn flooded with sunlight, the fears and forebodings that had haunted us in those gloomy firelit caves were forgotten. Moreover, the tramp of thousands of armed men and the excitement of coming battle thrilled our nerves. Not for many a day had I seen Leo look so vigorous and happy. Of late he had grown somewhat thin and pale, probably from causes that I have suggested, but now his cheeks were red and his eyes shone bright again. Asha also seemed joyous, for the moods of this strange woman were as fickle as those of nature's self, and varied as a landscape varies under the sunshine or the shadow. Now she was noon and now dark night, now dawn, now evening, and now thoughts came and went in the blue depths of her eyes like vapours wafted across the summer sky, and in the press of them her sweet face changed and shimmered as broken water shimmers beneath the beaming stars. Too long, she said with a little thrilling laugh, have I been shut in the bowels of sombre mountains, accompanied only by mutes and savages or by melancholy chanting priests, and now I am glad to look upon the world again. How beautiful are the snows above and the brown slopes below and the broad plains beyond that roll away to those bordering hills! How glorious is the sun, eternal as myself! How sweet the keen air of heaven! 
Believe me, Leo, more than twenty centuries have gone by since I was seated on a steed, and yet thou seest I have not forgot my horsemanship, though this beast cannot match those Arabs that I rode in the wide deserts of Arabia. Oh, I remember how at my father's side I galloped down to war amidst the marauding Bedouins, and how with my own hand I speared their chieftain and made him cry for mercy. One day I will tell thee of that father of mine, for I was his darling, and though we have been long apart I hold his memory dear, and look forward to our meeting. See, yonder is the mouth of that gorge where lived the cat-worshipping sorcerer, who would have murdered both of you because thou, Leo, didst throw his familiar to the fire. It is strange, but several of the tribes of this mountain and of the lands behind it make cats their gods or divine by means of them. I think that the first Rassan, the general of Alexander, must have brought the practice here from Egypt. Of this Macedonian Alexander I could tell thee much, for he was almost a contemporary of mine, and when I last was born the world still rang with the fame of his great deeds. It was Rassan who on the mountain supplanted the primeval fire-worship whereof the flaming pillars which light the sanctuary remain as monuments by that of Hes or Isis, or rather blended the two in one. Doubtless among the priests in his army were some of Pasht or Sekhet the cat-headed, and these brought with them their sacred cult that to-day has dwindled down to the vulgar divinations of savage sorcerers. Indeed, I remember dimly that it was so, for I was the first Hesea of this temple, and journeyed hither with that same General Rassam, a relative of mine. Now both Leo and I looked at her wonderingly, and I could see that she was watching us through her veil. As usual, however, it was I whom she reproved, since Leo might think and do what he willed and still escape her anger. Thou, Holly, she said quickly, who art ever of a cavilling and suspicious mind, remembering what I said but now, believest that I lied to thee. I protested that I was only reflecting upon an apparent variation between two statements. Play not with words, she answered. In thy heart thou didst write me down a liar, and I take that ill. No, foolish man, that when I said that the Macedonian Alexander lived before me, I meant before this present life of mine. In the existence that preceded it, though I outlasted him by thirty years, we were born in the same summer. And I knew him well, for I was the oracle whom he consulted most upon his wars, and to my wisdom he owed his victories. Afterwards we quarrelled, and I left him, and pushed forwards with Rassen. From that day the bright star of Alexander began to wane. At this Leo made a sound that resembled a whistle, in a very agony of apprehension, beating back the criticisms and certain recollections of the strange tale of the old abbot Kuen, which would rise within me, I asked quickly, And dost thou, Asha, remember well all that befell thee in this former life? Nay, not well, she answered meditatively, only the greater facts, and those I have for the most part recovered by that study of secret things which thou callest vision or magic. For instance, my holly, I recall that thou wast living in that life. Indeed, I seem to see an ugly philosopher clad in a dirty robe, and filled both with wine and the learning of others, who disputed with Alexander till he grew wroth with him and caused him to be banished, or drowned, I forget which. I suppose that I was not called Diogenes, I asked tartly, suspecting, perhaps not without cause, that Asha was amusing herself by fooling me. No, she replied gravely, I do not think that was thy name, 
for Diogenes thou speakest of was a much more famous man, one of real if crabbed wisdom. Moreover, he did not indulge in wine. I am mindful of very little of that life, however, not of more indeed than are many of the followers of the prophet Buddha, whose doctrines I have studied and of whom thou, Holly, hast spoken to me so much. Maybe we did not meet while it endured. Still I recollect that the Valley of Bones, where I found thee, my Leo, was the place where a great battle was fought between the fire-priests with their vassals, the tribes of the mountain, and the army of Rassen aided by the people of Kaloon. For between these and the mountain, in old days as now, there was enmity, since in this present war history does but rewrite itself. So thou thyself wast our guide, said Leo, looking at her sharply. I, Leo, who else? though it is not wonderful that thou didst not know me beneath those deathly wrappings. I was minded to wait and receive thee in the sanctuary, yet when I learned that at length both of you had escaped Aten and drew near, I could restrain myself no more, but came forth as hideously disguised. Yes, I was with you even at the river's bank, and though you saw me not, there sheltered you from harm. Leo, I yearned to look upon thee and to be certain that thy heart had not changed, although until the allotted time thou mightest not hear my voice or see my face, who wert doomed to undergo that sore trial of thy faith. Of Holly also I desired to learn whether his wisdom could pierce through my disguise, and how near he stood to truth. It was for this reason that I suffered him to see me draw the lock from the satchel on thy breast, and to hear me wail over thee yonder in the rest-house. Well, he did not guess so ill, but thou, thou knewest me, in thy sleep, knewest me as I am, and not as I seem to be. Yeah, she added softly, and did say certain sweet words which I remember well. Then beneath that shroud was thine own face, asked Leo again, for he was very curious on this point. The same lovely face I see today. Mayhap, as thou wilt, she answered coldly. Also it is the spirit that matters, not the outward seeming though men in their blindness think otherwise. Perchance my face is but as thy heart fashions it, or as my will presents it to the sight and fancy of its beholders. But hark, the scouts have touched. As Asha spoke, a sound of distant shouting was borne upon the wind, and presently we saw a fringe of horsemen falling back slowly upon our foremost line. It was only to report, however, that the skirmishers of Aten were in full retreat. Indeed, a prisoner whom they brought with them, on being questioned by the priests, confessed at once that the Kania had no mind to meet us upon the holy mountain. She proposed to give battle on the river's farther bank, having for a defence its waters which we must ford, a decision that showed good military judgment. So it happened that on this day there was no fighting. All that afternoon we descended the slopes of the mountain, more swiftly by far than we had climbed them after our long flight from the city of Kaloon. Before sunset we came to our prepared camping-ground, a wide and sloping plain that ended at the crest of the Valley of Dead Bones, where in past days we had met our mysterious guide. This, however, we did not reach through the secret mountain tunnel along which she had led us, the shortest way by miles, as Asha told us now, since it was unsuited to the passage of an army. Bending to the left, we circled around a number of unclimbable copies, beneath which that tunnel passed, 
and so at length arrived upon the brow of the dark ravine where we could sleep safe from attack by night. Here a tent was pitched for Ayesha, but as it was the only one, Leo and I with our guard bivouacked among some rocks at a distance of a few hundred yards. When she found that this must be so, Ayesha was very angry, and spoke bitter words to the chief who had charge of the food and baggage, although he, poor man, knew nothing of tents. Also she blamed Oros, who replied meekly that he had thought his captains accustomed to war and its hardships. But most of all she was angry with herself, who had forgotten this detail, and until Leo stopped her with a laugh of vexation, went on to suggest that we should sleep in the tent, since she had no fear of the rigours of the mountain coal. The end of it was that we supped together outside, or rather Leo and I supped, for as there were guards around us, Asha did not even lift her veil. That evening Asha was disturbed and ill at ease, as though new fears which she could not overcome assailed her. At length she seemed to conquer them by some effort of her will, and announced that she was minded to sleep and thus refresh her soul, the only part of her, I think, which ever needed rest. Her last words to us were, Sleep you also, sleep sound. But be not astonished, my Leo, if I send to summon both of you during the night, since in my slumbers I may find new counsels and need to speak of them to thee, how we break camp at dawn. Thus we parted, but ah, little did we guess how and where the three of us would meet again. We were weary, and soon fell fast asleep beside our campfire, for knowing that the whole army guarded us we had no fear. I remember watching the bright stars which shone in the immense vault above me until they paled in the pure light of the risen moon, now somewhat past her full, and hearing Leo mutter drowsily from beneath his fur rug that Asher was quite right, and that it was pleasant to be in the open air again as he was tired of caves. After that I knew no more until I was awakened by the challenge of a sentry in the distance, then after a pause a second challenge from the officer of our own guard. Another pause, and a priest stood bowing before us, the flickering light from the fire playing upon his shaven head and face, which I seemed to recognise. I, and he gave a name that was familiar to me, but which I forget, am sent, my lords, by Oros, who commands me to say that the Hesea would speak with you both, and at once. Now Leo sat up yawning and asked what was the matter. I told him, whereon he said he wished that Asher could have waited till daylight, then added, Well, there is no help for it. Come on, Horace. And he rose to follow the messenger. The priest bowed again, and said, The commands of the Hesea are that my lords should bring their weapons and their guard. What? grumbled Leah. To protect us for a walk of a hundred yards through the heart of an army? The Hesea, explained the man, has left her tent. She is in the gorge yonder, studying the line of advance. "'How do you know that?' I asked. "'I do not know it,' he replied. "'Oros told me so, that is all, "'and therefore the Hesea bade my lords bring their guard, "'for she is alone.' "'Is she mad?' ejaculated Leo, "'to wander about in such a place at midnight. "'Well, it is like her. "'I too thought it was like her, "'who did nothing that others would have done, "'and yet I hesitated.' Then I remembered that Asha had said she might send for us, 
Also I was sure that if any trick had been intended we should not have been warned to bring an escort. So we called the guard, there were twelve of them, took our spears and swords, and started. We were challenged by both the first and second lines of sentries, and I noticed that as we gave them the password the last picket, who of course recognized us, looked astonished. Still, if they had doubts, they did not dare express them, so we went on. Now we began to descend the sides of the ravine by a very steep path, with which the priest, our guide, seemed to be curiously familiar, for he went down it as though it were the stairway of his own house. "'A strange place to take us to at night,' said Leo doubtfully, when we were near the bottom and the chief of the bodyguard, that great red-bearded hunter who had been mixed up in the matter of the snow leopard, also muttered some words of remonstrance. Whilst I was trying to catch what he said, of a sudden something white walked into the patch of moonlight at the foot of the ravine, and we saw that it was the veiled figure of Asha herself. The chief saw her also, and said contentedly, "'Hez, hez!' "'Look at her,' grumbled Leo, strolling about in that haunted hole as though it were Hyde Park. And on he went at a run. The figure turned and beckoned to us to follow her as she glided forward, picking her way through the skeletons which were scattered about upon the lava bed of the cleft. Thus she went on into the shadow of the opposing cliff that the moonlight did not reach. Here in the wet season a stream trickled down a path which it had cut through the rock in the course of centuries, and the grit that it had brought with it was spread about the lava floor of the ravine, so that many of the bones were almost completely buried in sand. These, I noticed, as we stepped into the shadow, were more numerous than usual just here, for on all sides I saw the white crowns of skulls, or the projecting ends of ribs and thigh-bones. Doubtless, I thought to myself, that streamway made a road to the plain above, and in some past battle the fighting around it was very fierce, and the slaughter great. Here Asha had halted, and was engaged in the contemplation of this boulder-strewn path, as though she meditated making use of it that day. Now we drew near to her, and the priest who guided us fell back with our guard, leaving us to go forward alone, since they dared not approach the Hesea unbidden. Leo was somewhat in advance of me, seven or eight yards, perhaps, and I heard him say, "'Why dost thou venture into such places at night, Asha? unless indeed it is not possible for any harm to come to thee. She made no answer, only turned and opened her arms wide, then let them fall to her side again. Whilst I wondered what this signal of hers might mean, from the shadows about us came a strange rustling sound. I looked, and lo, everywhere the skeletons were rising from their sandy beds. I saw their white skulls, their gleaming arm and leg bones, their hollow ribs. The long-slain army had come to life again, and look, in their hands were the ghosts of spears. Of course I knew at once that this was but another manifestation of Asha's magic powers, which some whim of hers had drawn us from our beds to witness. Yet I confess that I felt frightened. Even the boldest of men, however free from superstition, might be excused should their nerve fail them if when standing in a churchyard at midnight suddenly on every side they saw the dead arising from their graves. 
Also our surroundings were wilder and more eerie than those of any civilized burying place. "'What new devilment of thine is this?' cried Leo, in a scared and angry voice. But Ayesha made no answer. I heard a noise behind me and looked round. The skeletons were springing upon our bodyguard, who for their part, poor men, paralysed with terror, had thrown down their weapons, and fallen some of them to their knees. Now the ghosts began to stab at them with their phantom spears, and I saw that beneath the blows they rolled over. The veiled figure above me pointed with her hand at Leo, and said, Seize him, but I charge you, harm him not. I knew the voice. It was that of a ten. Then too late I understood the trap into which we had fallen. Treachery! I began to cry. But before the word was out of my lips, a particularly able-bodied skeleton silenced me with a violent blow upon the head. But though I could not speak, my senses still stayed with me for a little. I saw Leo fighting furiously with a number of men who strove to pull him down, so furiously indeed that his frightful efforts caused the blood to gush out of his mouth from some burst vessel in the lungs. Then sight and hearing failed me, and thinking that this was death, I fell and remembered no more. Why I was not killed outright I do not know, unless in their hurry the disguised soldiers thought me already dead, or perhaps that my life was to be spared also. At least beyond the knock upon the head I received no injury. End of chapter 21